Michael Dowd died today, the high priest of collapse, the prophet of post-doom, <laughs> a doomer's doomer so far into the discourse around ecological collapse, overshoot, and the imminent destruction of everything we hold near and dear, passed away suddenly in his sleep last night, which is a cruel irony for someone warning us of our sudden and interminable end went out like that as a show that all this laughing, singing, dancing, cars passing, farmers waving, all of our society could just go out so quickly from a series of cascading breakdowns bringing us all with it. Michael was a, an incredible source of kindness and acceptance, patience, and joy, even in consuming yourself, or not being consumed, but feeling the burn and the fire of such unbearable knowledge, of diving in fully to how bad things are, of what's happening, of what he called reality, which, as he saw it, was the certainty of breakdown of what's happened to many civilizations before us, all of them certainly that overshot their planetary boundaries, that didn't respect nature, that devalued God, as he spelled G, Earth emoji D, nature, our planet. They fell, as we will. And we debated this, how, how much effect we can have over this. How, how we respond to it. <laughs> what he called the, the ecocidal arrogance of the almighty we. That we can stop this. Something I believe. But I know we can't stop what's coming because it's, it's, already, it's already in the soup. It's already baked in. We have baked in warming. We have baked in cascading species extinctions that will knock out successive layers of life that will break down everything that we depend on to live. The whole house of cards is, is falling piece by piece. Insect apocalypse here, crop failure here, erosion of soil here, ocean acidification and warming here. All of these things work together in ways that we have not even begun to cooperate and to align ourselves to just dealing with reality, dealing with reality to come together and do something about it. Michael worked hard every day of his life to do something about it, and he did it with a smile. And he made people laugh, and he made people feel like no matter what happens, we're gonna get through this. And it's a, I would say that he missed the worst of it, and that was a blessing, but we missed out on him. And as things get worse, and they will get worse, it's going to be a lot harder without Michael Dowd. He grew my heart and soul and helped me to deal with these horrible feelings and not internalize them in ways that are destructive to the people around me. And he showed me a true example of what of what virtue and courage and compassion and kindness and all these great human virtues 
that we are so bereft of could look like in action, in motion, in community. I'm gonna miss him. And I hope that we listen to people like Michael, to people clanging the doom bell that what we've done can't be undone. We have shattered so many tipping points, so many points of no return that collapse is inevitable. And the dark smile in this is that the only way that the self-destructive drug addict of global industrial civilization, of capitalism, would ever go down is in the event of a collapse. That economic transitions happen out of the collapse of another. One way of life dies, is no longer tenable, falls apart either over hundreds of years or very suddenly, and new systems, new constructions of human life emerge out of them. I believe, and this is where we differed, that we can get it together and salvage the wreckage and make this a, co a controlled burn where the forest comes back more vibrant, more beautiful, where we come back more beautiful by learning to listen to nature and to respect it and to worship it, to see it as God, not as something for us to exploit and disregard because if we continue this, we will fall. We're already falling. I see a plane coming down right now. The plane's going down. And uh, the only variable that climate scientists are not pretty sure of is us, is our response. So I should hope that Michael's death and his life push us to be a little kinder a little more patient and to look a little more seriously into the reality of our world because we dishonor it. We dishonor God itself, everything sacred, everything holy, everything beautiful by ignoring the bad, by ignoring how fucking horrible things are right now. Not tomorrow, how they are today. But there are whole countries that have been submerged in water, burned to the ground. That's happening. And we ignore that, and we dishonor ourselves, and we dishonor our Creator, and this creation that we are a part of. So, I don't really know what to say. I don't really know what to make of it. It could all go at any moment. And I think the great lesson, no matter what happens, is that we, as he worked with me, because I, I struggle with this stuff. I got into all these arguments with all these doomers and collapses, and. Someone told Michael, like, hey, this guy's kind of a prick. And he called me and was so kind, he, he offered to like be my counselor, be my therapist. And we talked and he helped me. And I should hope to carry that forward with love. I love that guy. I really did. I'm heartbroken that he's gone. And I hope it pushes people to listen to his words and take them more seriously. Because there's so much beauty and humanity in the hurricane. And we miss out on that when we cheapen all of reality to some thin little narrative of us, when we put ourselves in the center. 
Thank you, Michael. Don't let this be in vain. You watching, you listening. Do something about it, God damn it. Organize, dream, believe. He would hate me for saying this, but don't let hope die. Don't let hope and belief, not the false hope that things are just gonna write themselves, the radical hope that we must write them and that it's never too late. It's never too late. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how dark, there will always be another dawn. The old world is ending. And we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the systemic problems in our world. And the real solutions we have today. To transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse. To create an abundantly advanced collaborative society. That sustains all life. You may think it's an impossible dream. But the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Matt Holton, Amanda Smith, and Zachary Marlowe. And together, we can move past this economic absurdity and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely new. We are Mindless Society. Welcome to Post-Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. In this conversation, hour and a half conversation with Zachary Marlowe, I wasn't originally planning it to be a Post-Doom conversation. I thought we were just two colleagues getting to know each other, and actually I thought he was interviewing me for sort of a future podcast that he would do. So you'll see I talk a lot more than I normally do, and uh, and I don't ask the normal questions that I do in a Post-Doom conversation. Uh, and occasionally you can hear Connie clinking in the kitchen uh, doing stuff. But we ended up fortunately recording it, and we spiraled each other to some amazing places. Zachary is a big-hearted, brilliant young man, and I wanted to make sure that others got a chance to experience him, uh, as I did. And so uh, do check out the uh, description box for more information on the YouTube description box. And uh, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I sure did. We're rolling. We're live. Okay, great. Fabulous. We're broadcasting out to millions of subscribers and listeners. Are you millions serious? You've got no, millions? I'm just, no, I'm just kidding. Oh. We, have, we have probably a, around the same amount of people that you do, you know, devoted interested people um that are we're the weird kids you know we're not even like the band geeks we're the weird kids okay good well so michael it's it's really great to connect with you you're somebody that um i've wanted to talk to you for a while and um i just i just sense such a a potent compassion and mm. an exuberant acceptance and uh mm. just so many other uh adjectives <laughs> that could describe, you know, your expression because you, you are just such an intelligent person and such a caring person. And I love what you're saying and doing. And I, I love the community that you're building. It's like you build this support group, you know, it has the, it really has the feeling of, um, of like an, an AA or something, you know, for just dealing with really hard truths that you do in such a gentle way. And, um, just wrestling with that, that thing that we're all going through, you know, I was driving through, I was thinking about you the other day. I was driving through the suburbs where I grew up 
the wasteland, you know, really. Where is, it? Where is this? And this this is uh, Lawrenceville, Georgia. Okay. And, oh, yeah, sure. Um, I know that. I, I saw the first homeless person that I'd ever seen there. You know, after years of leaving and leaving <laughs> good, going really far away to try to get away from ultimately what I was trying to get away from, which was in myself. But I came back here and I hadn't been here in years and years. And I saw everything was almost exactly the same with just those those few little signs of collapse. You know, mm -hmm. an old woman begging on the sidewalk where yeah. would, that would have been unimaginable when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking about the person I was when I lived there, you know, in, in youth. And I was so isolated and alienated and I had such a detachment from society, from everything that was going on around me. I had no interest in it. I had no connection to it. I had no relationship to it. And I remembered, I remembered this video game that I started playing. It was called Fallout, which is a game about the end of the world. The world has ended and people went into bunkers and then they come out. And it, it's a very, thinking back on that is so strange to me that it's this wish fulfillment that you wish the world was over. So that you could explore it anew, you know, and nice. that that got me into this whole train of like, of, of this apocalyptic fiction because I had mm. so little connection to the world around me, of people going around driving in their cars, shopping, getting jobs, you know, becoming popular. All these mm. things were just completely alien to me. So I, I my escape from that was like to go pretend the world was over and that I could wander around and, you know explore things and, and move mm -hmm. through this world and see it with this different perspective. Because for me, the world was already over. Mm -hmm. And I, I dreamt that it would end that all this, what I know, what I now know is capitalism, what I now know is money, what I now mm -hmm. know is a, a form of culture, not life itself that right. I had no connection to. Right. But I really, I craved that. And that, that eventually brought me deeper down the rabbit hole because <laughs> I wanted more, you know, I was like this, you know, I wanted to see how other people imagined the end of the world. Mm -hmm. So I found my way to a, a beautiful book called uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Mm -hmm. One of the most beautiful, tender novels ever written mm. about a, a man and his child wandering through an even greater wasteland, a world of ash, a world and just remembering like the, the hem of his wife's dress at a theater and, you know, just being haunted by, he says, from daydreams on the road, there is no waking. Mm. He could remember everything of her, save her sin. I remember, I remember this passage that I, I don't know why this stuck in my head, but he says, uh, it's, it's, um, he walked out into the cold gray light and he saw for a brief moment, the absolute truth of the universe, darkness, implacable, the blind dogs of the sun in their running and somewhere two hunted animals trembling like ground foxes in their cover, borrowed world and borrowed time and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. And I'm like 15, 16 years old, <laughs> like imagining like this, the levels of alienation to look back yeah, on it is so yeah, silly. Yeah. It's so silly that we allow this construction of society to be so monstrous and alien that a young man, you know, mm. a young man in good health with legs and arms to move and see. And, you know, I now have a voice to speak and that I had no connection to society yeah. because the yeah. way that we've arranged things in this, you know, the world is already over. Spiritually, the world is dead, and and it's a it's a miracle that we have these connections that we do still that our hearts still beat that they haven't just given up, you know, mm -hmm. because spiritually the world is already over. Mm.
Wow. Well, I'm, I, I think I get the heart and I think I actually align with the heart and soul of what you're saying, although the language I trip up a little bit only because so much of my work in the post-doom, no-gloom realm, um, I've had now 85 or 86 post-doom conversations. Um, everything's up on the post-doom website, of course, but then also collecting, creating my own, but also collecting from others what I consider and what they consider to be like post-doom scripture, like what are the most inspired writings, videos, text, you know, blog posts, whatever. But what are the things that allow people to understand the nature of reality, to really get it? Uh, you used a, a couple of words together in your description of me that I thought, damn, that's good. I wrote it down. Exuberant acceptance. It's like, wow, that, yeah. Because when we truly understand reality, including patterns that, that have been at work for thousands of years, then we don't have to fight against it and, and, and hate it and be bitter or whatever. And so I still find, even though I fully agree that, that, uh, that things are collapsing, it's unstoppable, that things are, 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 things, are, things are always evolving in terms of adapting to reality, but I no longer interpret evolution the way that I did for probably 12 years at least, which was a more human-centered, unidirectional sort of things are getting better and better and more complex and more consciousness. And and, uh, and that's and I was evangelistic about that. In fact, my, my second book, Thank God for Evolution, has that perspective at the heart of it, which I now completely reject. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, even though my book was endorsed by six Nobel Prize winning scientists and like 120 religious scholars from all over the spectrum, I don't recommend my book because it's like 10%. I, 90% of it's still great, but the 10% that's hopium, what I would now call hopium, it's it's like saying, oh, here, have this gourmet meal. There's only 10% fentanyl in it, but but the rest of it's really good. You know, it's like, so, but. I, I just want to say real quick. Oh, sorry. Uh, well, when you said the, the simplicity and the complexity, I was just remembering this line that I, I heard Stan Rushworth say last night about how the um, complexity of our society is illusory. Because things are actually much simpler now because it's all about like acquisition and fear and power and profit and accumulation. Whereas he talks about the, you know, the ancient mentality, the indigenous mentality is much more complex and rich because their job is to be in relationship with all of reality, with time and space and nature and each other and to tend all these relationships, this fabric of reality. That is so much more complex and brilliant than what we have been reduced to today. Sorry, yeah, well, to he, he brings, I mean, Stan Rushworth is one of my absolute heroes in terms of um, indigenous, um, kin-centric, life-centered uh, scholars, hearts, teachers, amazing. And, and so I agree with him in that. We have in the, in the industrial world, in the, in the anthropocentric world, in the human-centered rather than life-centered or kin-centric world, yes, the way that we define complexity is very narrow and very anthropocentric, very hubristic. Um, parasitic the, even. Yeah, exactly. Very parasitic. And so, but I, the one thing that the language that I might take issue with, or at least interpret differently than what you articulated a few minutes ago, was that I don't find that the world is spiritually dead. Um, I find that the biosphere and other life forms, everything's dying. I mean, we're, we're the, the complexity, biological complexity of the last 65 million years 
is in a state of decline, is in a state of, of collapse, is in a state of most likely a sixth mass extinction that will include us and most mammals and most trees and most insects and, and most vertebrates. So clearly that form of complexity, that biological richness and fecundity is collapsing. And yet for those of us who have the eyes to see and ears to hear, there is a communion and Stan Rushworth is one of the greatest teachers um, as Robin Wall Kimmer and so many other uh, indigenous leaders are these days, guides to a to the most intimate, personal, respectful, reverential, a reciprocal relationship possible with the body of life and with the existing life forms. I, I love the, the phrase, I think it's Daniel Wildcat, who said, we're surrounded by relatives, not resources. And so it is still possible in these dying times, in this, this time of great collapse, this time of great consequences of our millennia of anthropocentrism, I still find that it's very rich time for a deep, intimate communion, a spiritually vital relationship with life, even in its decline, even if it, in its collapse. And that's what I call post-doom, no gloom. So I feel that... Um... I agree completely. I mean, I, I perhaps misspoke when I said the world is spiritually dead. I mean, I, I should say the human-made environment. Oh, yeah. The culture, no. the culture yes. that we identify with, yes. you know, I'm big with business, you progress, yes. <laughs> success. All, yes. all our measures of success are measures of death, really. Bankrupt. And, you know, you go GDP, yes. which is a measure of, you know, exploitation and resource use and how much shit we're burning into the air. Right. And, you know, the, these are our measures of 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 success. These are our high scores on the video game that we're playing, which is this false, you know, this, this monstrous algorithmic yeah. video game, this overlord that we call the market that 1% of the population plays this game and they're feeding all life into it like tokens yeah. Yeah. and, and just banging the machine and the, the scores yeah. going up and the number gets higher. And we say we're doing better when really we're doing worse and worse. Yeah. And you really put your finger on it there. I mean, I think it's our measure. How, when I think about what are the fundamental differences, like the, the truly ground level differences between healthy, truly sustainable cultures, those that live in a mutually enhancing, respectful, reverential relationship to the body of life as our biophysical creator, sustainer, and end. And anthropocentric, ecocidal, city-based, um, extractive, and exploitative cultures. What are the differences? Well, one of them, it seems to me, is how we relate to our biophysical creator, sustainer, and end. That is the living world, Gaia, whatever you want to call. I mean, I actually, as I think you know, I spell God these days, G, Earth emoji, D. <laughs> because any concept of the divine that doesn't include our living biophysical creator, sustainer, and end, the cosmos, the, 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 the biosphere, is an inadequate and indeed ecocidal notion of the divine. And so I how wanted, do... Oh, yeah, go, sorry, no, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was... So, so how do we be with all of that from places of, from a big hearted place of compassion and generosity where we don't close off our heart so we can still feel the grief, we can still feel the sadness. And yet what we're most present to on a day by day, moment by moment basis is the fucking awe of, oh my God, I still get to eat a meal. I still get to go grocery shopping. That won't happen much longer, probably. You know, I can still put gas in the car. The the, the hordes have not come. You know, my, my family, because I'm living somewhat privileged in that where I'm living now, we don't have to struggle yet 
for our food or our shelter or, you know, we're not aware, you know, we're not worried about our, our safety yet, as many people around the world are that are further along in collapse. So part of what I see my role is in this whole post-doom, no-gloom realm is to help people, A, understand reality so they can get away from the confusion to clarity, like, oh, oh, of course, of course, of course. So they understand collapse and, and inevitability. And the blame game can evaporate where they can no longer just blame the capitalists, blame the Republicans, blame the boomers, blame whoever, because there's a lot of blameworthy stuff. And yet when you realize these are millennia old patterns of anthropocentrism, human centeredness that are ecocidal, then it's like, okay, what, uh, you know, what good does it do to continue playing that blame game? And then really find where does love motivate you and I and all the people that we know and love? Where does love motivate us to be in action in ways that we can make a difference? Because just because we can't save everything doesn't mean there's not a hell of a lot of really great stuff we can do. I was going to say a minute ago uh, that I just, I loved so much. Um, you said this as an aside in one of your videos that um, this this people debating, like, is there a God? Is there no God? It's just like absurd that like a God is reality, you know, that, yes. uh, what, what did you say? Can you rip your face well, that? It was so yeah, powerful. I mean, the theism versus atheism debate, I see as a form of collective insanity because you've got thousands, maybe millions of people debating whether or not God is real or whether or not God exists when the one real God, namely reality, personified or not, we've been living out of right relationship to, and we're now already beginning to experience consequences of biblical proportion. So I see theists and atheists as in, in a neck and neck race to see which one can contribute to the demise of the biosphere more effectively. The biosphere is God. The biosphere is divine. Let's just say divine. The cosmos is divine. This is our creator, sustainer, and end, our biophysical and living creators, sustainer, and end. But if we have a concept of God as a supernatural otherworldly entity, and then we think of believers as people who believe in that being, and atheists as those who discount that being, well, then you've got a situation where your very definition of God is causing you, whether you're religious or secular, to treat the biosphere as an it, as an it to be exploited rather than a thou to be honored. It's, it's sort of really where the, the living world, our creator, sustainer, and end, is treated as a larder and a toilet rather than a divine <laughs> being. Crazy. It's just crazy. I, I laugh when I hear you talk, and I kind of cracked up a minute ago. You were just like, oh, yeah, the end of everything. I just kind of get to crack up, and it's like – I was thinking about this the other day too, that like the, that apocalyptic fiction you know, and and that doomed beautiful poetry of like Cormac McCarthy and – and just the stuff that I was reading at that period and still find great beauty. And it's like um, the, the scratch, the itch that the uh, angsty person feels when they mm. hear like metal music, when they mm. live in this suppressed button down, like contradictorily puritanically religious and also completely godless world, <laughs> like exactly. unspiritual existence that, that there's like this great, like, Oh yeah. Like, like when you hear like metal and black Sabbath and someone yeah, right. screaming, like I know so many people growing up that listen to just, like in their headbuds, walking around earbuds, walking around school, they just hear like, Oh, you know, it's like this crazy, like just the, the, the there's a release yeah. that you feel when you're suppressed, when right. the, the truth is not told for a long time right. and you hear it spoken. There yes. is a, of familiarity and uh, a release and like a satisfaction. So it, it's great to find, you know, truth spoken to power in the time yeah. of great lies. Yeah. But I think ultimately yeah. what is killing the world is 
ignorance is, is, you know, ignorance and denial of the God and everything of this obvious perfection of nature and the, the holism and this, and the synchronicity and this, and the sync. I'm losing my words here. I'm getting all teared up thinking about my, my creator and creation that we are a part yes, of this thing, exactly, you know, exactly. we are all life. And that the, the absurdity of anthropocentrism, right. as you call it, uh, I would use different language for that, but the anthropocentric perspective is that it is ultimately cannibalistic and, and parasitic. Yes, exactly. Us, and we think it's all about us. Right, exactly. But we it's, even, it's, all it's even it's even bad for us yeah, that exactly. the measures of health in this exactly. production obsessive society are destroyed. And inequality yes. itself is one of the greatest detriments to health, that you can't have a healthy society when you're pulled between these two extremes and there's this tension between peoples. There's this fear and isolation and anger yeah, and exactly. competition. Right. I'm, I'm with you 100%. And you can't have healthy humans in a sick and dying world. That's the thing. Most, most of us, for the last many hundreds of years, probably thousands of years in many cases, don't understand the nested nature of reality that we are made up of smaller, creative, divine, intelligent creatures like our microbiome, for example, that we don't exist without. And we are part of and dependent upon larger, creative, intelligent, divine beings like trees and plankton and all other creatures and everything else. And so I call that everything that needs to exist for us to exist, like those aspects of our inner reality and those aspects of our outer reality that we don't exist without. I call that primary reality. And whether you use divine language like God or the goddess or Gaia for that, or whether you use secular language, it doesn't really matter. But what does matter is whether we have what, what our relationship, do we treat primary reality as primary or do we treat primary reality as secondary that we're primary and that hubris, that anthropocentric, I love the, the ancient Greek definition of hubris is the overweening pride of the doomed. <laughs> and that's what human centeredness does. That's why one of my favorite books is a book uh, written by an indigenous elder and scholar um, called um, Columbus and Other Cannibals by Jack Forbes. And it's all about what he calls wetiko, wetiko, which is this sickness of the mind, this virus of the mind, which is what anthropocentrism is. And and it's really one of his one of his essays you can really get in like 20 minutes 25 minutes i've recorded it that was a, 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 like a summary of his book columbus and other cannibals jack forbes there's an essay called why are people evil and it's just a little introduction to this notion of of waitiko this this virus of the mind that causes us to think it's all about us and so then we use other people we use the living world you know, and as Thomas Berry used to make the point, when you say you've used me, I mean, the, the, and yet that's what we—that's the way we treat our biophysical, living creator, sustainer, and end. So, at any rate, I I feel grateful that there are people your age, because you're considerably younger than I am, who have a, a common heart, a common passion, and a desire to communicate with and connect with others of other generations and perspectives and backgrounds, because I think we do share a common heart, a common set of values and priorities and commitments. And certainly I find that uh, some, of the, some of the voices that I find to be the most faithful and countable are the voices of people like Stan Rushworth and Robin Wall Kimmerer and many other indigenous leaders, because those places where biodiversity 
and the land and the water and the quality of the soil are being protected or at least attempted to be protected most fiercely are almost always being led by indigenous resistance. And so, you know, they don't want us white folk to just say, oh, isn't that great? No, they want us to do our own resistance of that because even if 90% or 80% or 60%, but some large percent of the bio, you know, biological diversity collapses and goes extinct in the next 20 or 30 years or 40 years, which is absolutely possible, perhaps even likely, still the soil that you build in your backyard could, could be what keeps some organisms, some worms, some, some microbes alive from millions of more years. We can't predict what our pro-future, pro-life in the sense of pro-biology actions can be. And that's why I'm always encouraging people to follow their hearts and do anything you possibly can to participate with and contribute to the regenerative, restorative um, uh, d dynamics of this incredible living divine planet. There's so much that I, I just, you know, totally reverberate with in, um, you know, when you speak and yeah, I, I feel that harmony of values tremendously. I, I've read that book or at least a, a good portion of it, Columbus and the Cannibals. And the, the Wedico is, is a very powerful way to understand what I would call capitalism. And I don't see capitalism as something that just started a few hundred years ago. I see it as something birthed when the first debt was inscribed in the first stone tablet, you know, to, uh, basically create a, sur a surplus that was hoarded by peoples in walled cities. You know, it's interesting to think about the, hmm, that the, that the movements for peace and religions and spiritual uh, schools and philosophical schools in our history arose, as the great David Graeber pointed out, parallel to both imperial conquest and money and markets, which, which all arose parallel. And so you have these responses to this explosion of that impulse that Peter Joseph calls the root socioeconomic orientation, yeah. which yeah. is, is the, the basically the valuation and scarcity and hierarchical dominance, which propels itself into this, this 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 colossus, this thing, yes. you know, that that gains speed and that gains power, and it's it's accreting like a snowball going down a hill. That the reaction and the cycle of dominance that uh, forms its great gains its greatest power not in the sword, but in right. the, the loaf of bread, and saying, "I have right. this. I control the resources. Right. I control wealth, and you need to work for me." So you have the the labor market coming into that as well, and slavery as as well. And it's all in this incredibly insecure dynamic of accumulation, domination, and the psychology of domination is one of pure insecurity. Yeah. So to dominate other people, you do it out of this fear that they're going to dominate you first. It's always like, you know, uh, I think I'm thinking about George Bush. What was that thing he said? Shock and awe. He's talking about, you know, per, what, what was it? They, they went out looking for for weapons of mass destruction and all this bullshit, you know, because. I'm kind of getting, I'm kind of losing my, my speed here, but essentially th there's this, there's this reactive cycle that has developed over thousands of years into what we now call capitalism, into what we now call industrial civilization. And uh, the great Murray Bookchin made a, a point in a great essay called uh, social ecology versus deep ecology, I think. 
Yeah, I've, I've read that a couple times. He's saying that a lot of people will will just lump industrial civilization and extractivism and all these things into this sort of metaphorical construct, when in reality we just call it capitalism because it's a, a very specific form of accumulation and dominance that has uh, gained momentum and mass through this systematic process. And I, I think that what, what, of, of all the things that I agree with in what you have to say, I think one of the biggest ones that I don't agree with fundamentally is that technology is, is in, its, in and of itself a, a singular cause of our destruction. And I, I think there's certain technologies that are, that most technologies uh, will become in the ethos of that wedico of that capitalistic market dominance hierarchy will become a weapon anything even even bread even you know uh ways of making food ways of generating abundance even things that i would consider a beneficial um ability like the ability to generate clean energy mm -hmm. in this market-based paradigm that seeks endless growth at all cost that is fundamentally predicated on increasing cyclical consumption like i, I walked through walmart the other day because I had to find the dumbest little headphone adapter. This like, oh, I was so mad. And I was just walking through this graveyard, and I just saw, I saw in every piece of clothing hanging on a, on a wall a dead bird or a, mm -hmm. a, a lizard that no longer exists, or you know, and just just thinking about the absurdity of the total lack of economy done in the name of economy that we produce quintillions of objects not for any human demand or drive that humans have but to turn it into this consolidated power and wealth and influence to drive this economic cycle so i would say yeah. that ultimately the technology that is really destroying us is a social technology that that is you know coagulated yeah. into money yeah let me let me lean into that a little bit because i um i find myself too as i as i began exploring the links you gave me and that sort of thing I found myself just agreeing with the vast majority, but there were a few things I wanted to lean into that I think we either language differently or hold differently. And one of them as you, is, as you said, um, for me, I see five main causes and drivers of collapse and ecocide. That these things are at the heart of the collapse of all 80 or 90 or 100 civilizations that we know of that have gone through the boom and bust, rise and fall, progress, regress, collapse process over the last six, 7,000 years. And they are the things driving the collapse of industrial civilization and capitalism. And so the, 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 these five I see as first anthropocentrism or human centeredness, which is really the root of the others, because it's our human centered religions. It's our human centered understanding of economics rather than a nature or life centered understanding of economics, which is basically ecology. Ecology is the economic system of Gaia, of God, of G, Earth, Emoji, D. And so if we don't mimic our economic system on the economic system of the natural world, the living systems, ecology, basically, um, when I speak to religious people, I say, if ecology isn't the heart of your theology, your theology is leading us to hell, leading us to ecocide. <laughs> so the first is anthropocentrism, and that's at the heart of all monetary systems, whether you call it capitalism or whether you call it whatever, but any economic system that treats the living world our biophysical creator, sustainer, and end as a, as a larder in a toilet is going to self-destruct because it monetizes the living world. And we, we are deceived at that point of imagining that a, we can control it. And that B that it's kind of like the difference between the land belongs to us 
unsustainable, ecocidal, or we belong to the land. That sense of, 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 of reciprocity and humility. So the first is anthropocentrism. The others are civilization, progress, science and technology, human-centered science and technology, not life-centered knowledge and life-centered technology, technology that mimics nature, and capitalism, or as I said, any, any money system, any monetary system, any system of trade and exchange that treats God, the living world, as a larder in a toilet. And so I see that technology that's anthropocentric, and you can go back as far as fire and spears and spear chuckers. I mean, you can look at the whole history of technology, human-centered technology, and it always creates more problems. Th that is, technology that doesn't mimic nature's technology, technology that doesn't become food for other creatures at its end, technology that benefits us but doesn't benefit other creatures, always creates more problems for humans and other creatures, and it does it over time. So that's what I mean when I point to human-centered knowledge. I mean, this is the thing. We are, we're so full of ourselves that we think that knowledge, look at what this, this Hubble Space Telescope and the James Webb and all of our, you know, all of our technology has given us such profound understanding of reality. We come to understand reality, but religion has not been playing its corresponding role because only if religion is doing its job, is there an institution or an aspect of society that helps us to not understand reality, but relate to reality? And if we don't relate in a healthy way to reality, then our knowledge can fucking kill us. And that's what nuclear technology and all this other stuff that abuses. It's almost like we have industrial scale abuse and rape of the living world because of our knowledge. So that's well, it's, why it's the, um, it's the yeah. value system. It's a, and that's right. uh, John McMurtry's term of value system disorder. That right, where we exactly. place value, and I think that the order of operations there isn't that some that the that this, this disorder doesn't emanate from a cultural dysfunction. It comes from an economic and scarcity-driven drive. Well, well, to but hang, hang on a second. Culture precedes economics, not the not vice versa. A culture, an economic, any economic system is part of a cultural worldview. It's part of a cultural way of being. For example, the economic system in genuinely sustainable cultures, like the Kogi Indians, for example, they even have a city-based sustainable culture that is based on ecological principles. But their their systems of trade and exchange are within that. And so I see, I don't see economics as more foundational than cultural. It's a subset of culture. So here's what I mean by that. Um, essentially, it's not like they people come up with some economic paradigm and then map it onto whatever they're doing. I'm saying that basically the need for uh, to meet life's needs and the basically the relationship that one has to scarcity. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think about the you know the bonobos and the uh, chimpanzees, mm -hmm. and the bonobos live in an abundant environment. They have plenty mm -hmm. of things, all the things that they need abundantly, and they don't dominate each other they have a lot of sex they hang out they eat fruit and it's great mm -hmm. and then you have the chimps which are almost genetically identical and they're literally like separated by like one river they're mm -hmm. on the other side of the tracks so to speak evolutionarily right. Right. and they live in a scarce uh, less resource abundant or relation relation relationship abundant if you want to mm -hmm. no i'm with you um and they dominate each other and they cut they break each other's balls off and they rape each other and they you know they they have this i would consider that an economic system because it's based upon their relationship to scarcity. And oh, so that's you, interesting. Okay. So given yeah, given your definition, and, and this may go back to Butchin and others, 
I, I okay. So I can let me back off then and say that given the le- the way you're languaging, and others uh, clearly. Oh, real quick, I was on. just going to say I was thinking about this last night. It literally made me like I was like trying to go to bed. I was listening to one of your talks, and I just like laughed out loud. <laughs> and it was just like that the technology that's really fucked us over is language. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Symbolic language. I'm totally with you on and that. And the, the the Phoenician alphabet especially was yes, a really exactly. bad move. No, because you, it's um, not pictorial. It's it's totally squiggles. So it's we have this basis of understanding reality that's based in language that's not based on anything real. There's no physical reference to it. So we will we're conditioned from childhood to abs- accept absurdities. Yes, no, exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up, uh, Zachary, because a lot of people, you know, Language is kind of like the water we swim in. We don't we don't pay attention to it because it's the water we swim in. And yet, as two of my as two of the colleagues that I hold in highest esteem, both ground both have a significant mentor in the same person that is one of my most significant intellectual mentors, and that's Walter Ong. Walter Ong was the great Jesuit scholar that specialized in orality and literacy and the difference between oral consciousness and literate consciousness. And Paul Kingsnorth uh, from the deep, uh, from the Dark Mountain Project, and David Abram, Dave Abram, who's written some amazing books, The Deep Ecologist. Both of them have the same understanding that basically that English is the language of ecocide. And even speech itself, I mean, the, our, our language itself, it can, and there certainly are many examples of indigenous cultures that have a language, that the language itself facilitates right relationship to reality. But certainly, as you say, alphabetical language, and there are many forms of language that treat the living world as it, as noun, and that almost force us when we simply use that language to behave in ecocidal ways. And so glad you brought that up. English is uh, basically a business language that's a mishmash of all these other languages. So when I was I was staying with all these Russian uh, people that I met on Couchsurfer in my in my uh, monkish uh, random <laughs> life of of interdependence on other people because uh-huh. I don't have that stuff we call money that lets you not need other people. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, they they were trying to learn English and they kept coming up to me and being like, "There, there, there." Just like all the different spellings, and they were just right. so confused. And I just remember they got to this word. It was the word "though" with the G H T, and they looked at it, and they were just like, "What? Why?" <laughs> <laughs> they were so obs- that language is English. The English language is this yeah. mishmash of French and German and this and that and that. Yeah. You know, a word here and a word there, and the structure here because it's based on this culture of trade of of this you know spreading you know trade based society that that has come to dominate everything as. You know the end all be all of existence that right. that to you know business is life. Yes, and there's there's a reason that we don't know of any literate cultures that weren't ecocidal that didn't ultimately do themselves in through ecological overshoot. Or yeah, I mean there's a few that like a volcano wiped them out, but by and large, literate cultures literacy itself forces the human mind to relate to the living world as object rather than as thomas Bray says, the universe is a communion of subjects not a collection of objects and yet literacy itself almost forces us to relate to the living world as a series of objects uh, well, I, I as a, a great lover of language and to get back to cormac mccarthy like when i read his writing and poetry i look up at the world with a greater appreciation for life Yes. The ways that he speaks, the ways that he uses that language. So language to me has been the greatest vehicle 
to love life and to love Absolutely. the God in everything. Absolutely. And so I think about language at its foundational basis in like cuneiform is about accounting, you know, it, it, the first written, you know, documents mm -hmm. are about mm -hmm. accounting. And that brings, that's back, brings back to that, you know, um, economics as the foundational yeah. point of this degeneration that we've had. And essentially that's one of the larger points to the movement that we're trying to get off the ground and the consciousness that we're trying to get people to understand is that, the overshoot that we're seeing in the world today, I do not see it as an inherent consequence of humans organizing themselves into complex forms. Yeah. I would see it as a consequence of, in our case especially right now, I, I can't go deep into the history of all these other systems that have gone before, but our current system and our current predicament is that on the track that we're on, which is moving very fast and an exponential speed forward, demands more theft of life and destruction to turn it into plastic to turn it into objects that are used once and then thrown away because like uh, i was at a friend's house the other day at a, a dinner and this is old old friends that i hadn't seen in probably a decade mm. and i didn't know really where they were in their awareness mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. my experience is of like a traveling prophet like getting people to question everything that they've experienced and mm -hmm. you know help them see that there's this deeper story underneath all of that but it was kind of at the end of the night. I was I was trying to feel out like where they are because it just seemed like we we're in a very normal suburban environment. I didn't really want to be like, hey, this is all bullshit, you know, like this is all the world is ending, you know. And so there was this refrigerator that had this like mechanism for the water filter that like shot out instead of coming down. Right. So everybody kept getting sprayed with it, and it became yeah. a big joke. And right. so I was like, I just kind of at the last like leg, leg of a little, a little dinner whenever after after dessert and everything i pointed that out and he said oh yeah that thing is terrible and i said well you know why it's bad it's because of planned obsolescence because there's no yeah. incentive in this system right. to make it right the first time it's actually right. a, a feature that right. your fridge sucks enough that you will buy another one this extremely resource intensive full of all these metals and and magnets and you know all this material that is ripped out of the earth that has to have a turnover yeah. rate that is exponential Right. And so if we want to really approach changing our relationship to our world, we need to move away from that. And it is amazing how many activists are completely resistant to thinking about that. How yeah, many that, progressives and all these people that they won't think about it. They won't yeah, question it. Let me lean into that with you because uh, you, you've, you've now mentioned what I would at least on a somewhat superficial uh, study of, of where you're coming from and what's really most important to you and all, where I think I would lean into in terms of our biggest difference is that you still seem to think, and correct me if I'm wrong, you still seem to think that certain things are possible in terms of consciousness and, and we, the, the, you know, what I call the ecocidal hubris of the almighty we, that we can still make changes that I think are so far beyond, literally thousands of years beyond, that we could have made those changes maybe few hundred or a few thousand years ago, but it's no longer possible. So it seems to me that if I were to lean into where I think we differ most, because that's the, ju that's the juicy stuff, is <laughs> it seems to me that there are at least a half a dozen tipping points, uh, thresholds that are not, we're not at risk of passing them. They don't, they're not in front of us. We ran over that dog 20 or 30 years ago. They know these are tipping points that are now already in unstoppable runaway rapidly accelerating out of our control mode. And one of them is the burning of the forests. All the forests of the world, virtually all the major forests of the world, will be burning in the next 20 to 50 years, regardless of anything we do. So we can't stop that no matter what. If every human being went extinct tonight in our sleep, 
So there were no emissions. We reduced emissions to zero tomorrow. Carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide would continue to burn just from the great conflagration of forests that's already unstoppable and the great release of methane from permafrost and from the forests and, and elsewhere, the, 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 the tropical wetlands. Uh, so that's one thing. Another is the loss of the, of the oceans, that basically we're going to lose all the ice of the world. It's unstoppable. Humans, there's nothing we can do to stop that. And I don't see us being able to make any large-scale shift in economics or politics or governance or anything prior to us hitting the wall completely. And that whether there are any human beings at all 20 years from now, which there might not be, or there may be 7,000 pockets of several hundred humans in different isolated outposts of humanity, but it's not likely to be more than that. I mean, I think we're already in that runaway mode of the loss of the forest, loss of the oceans, the acidification and the deoxygenation of the oceans. And so we're looking at so many tipping points that debating or strategizing, like how can we have this happen or how can we get people to do that? It seems to me to be completely missing the point. It's almost like if you've got a terminal diagnosis and you're going to die in the next two to 10 years, no doubt, and you're debating about retirement or you're debating about what gave you the cancer that's going to kill you. It's like, who the fuck cares what gave it to you? You got it. Now, how do you live from now on? So I, I just would love to lean into I'm, any of that. I'm, with yeah, you. I'm glad you brought that up because that was in listening to your work. That was really the, the big one that I, I disagree with or would hope to expand the discussion along that, that big we. But first, I wanted to say on the cancer thing, I, I, I think about when you say that a friend of mine that got a terminal cancer diagnosis. And her response was, I don't know how this happened. It's through, the, through the, a miracle of awareness and synchronicity. She learned of uh, a substance, uh, a ritual called ayahuasca that I'm sure you're yeah, familiar, familiar with. Yeah, I'm very familiar with, yeah. And she went on a journey, an adventure across the world into the jungle mm -hmm. to sit with indigenous shamans mm -hmm. and she healed herself. Through that and other lifestyle changes and things that, so there is this, there isn't a, a a binary of except you know some kind of chemotherapy treatment which I would consider like, you know just put it all on technology, nuke it, radiation, you know like that's not gonna that's that could could kill you, could do more harm than good, but I think there is this third option, this third way that, and I, I think about Stan Rushworth, um, saying this beautiful thing. I couldn't find the clip last night, but I wanted to find it so I could send it to you. But he he basically said this assurance that we are doomed, that this is it, that it's over. He said, that's the same arrogance that got us into this position to begin with. That's yeah, the that, white man's I, I, I could not possibly disagree more. There's just... I, and I get, I get that that's going to be the perspective of, of indigenous leaders. It's going to be the perspective of anybody who's still holding out for what I would call hopium. And, and I define hopium very specifically, very clearly, you know, very deliberately as here's, here's my definitions of hopium. It's five definitions, a comforting vision of the future that requires breaking the laws of physics, biology, or ecology. It requires that addiction to false, literally impossible hopes. Three, irrational or unwarranted optimism that promises short-term relief, but delivers crushing disappointment and despair when reality inevitably bites. Any hope that leads us to put off or not prioritize what matters most individually in terms of my relationships, my family, my friends, my neighbors, and collectively. If we hope, if, if millions of people believe like you do, 
we're not going to take the, the spent fuel rods out of the swimming pools. We're going to think that things can continue, that transformation is possible, that the evolution of consciousness can still make the difference. And as long as we believe that, we're not going to, to accept the fact, in my opinion, this is my, you can call it arrogant if you want, but that we're going to experience tons of electric failures and tsunamis and, and power grid failures. And we're going to have dozens, maybe hundreds of nuclear meltdowns unless we accept civilization is fucked. There's no stopping that. <laughs> and we need to get the spent fuel rods out of the swimming pools ASAP. So I, first of all, I don't. Well, I don't, let me let me finish. Oh, well, ahead, my last definition of hopium is that so any any hope that leads us to put off what's most important collectively and individually. And then finally, believing that the climate crisis can be fixed or solved by doubling down on the very things causing ecocide. And that's the thing that so many people that what, what they believe can possibly transform things, what they what they think is possible in terms of consciousness transformation, political transformation, economic transformation, transformation at any level would literally require and depend upon the very causes of ecocide going into the future. So that's why I'm so passionate about people getting off of hopium. Hope is great. There's no problem with hope. Unless you're hoping in stuff that's going to cause us to actually do geological scale evil by not having as few nuclear meltdowns as possible, by not moving other species because we know that we're fucked and that there's no stopping at least 90% of mammals or let's say 80% of mammals going out in the next several decades, including humans. If we don't accept the inevitability of that, then we're going to still be hoping for some kind of transformation that I hope for in my 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. But since understanding abrupt climate change, like half of, you know, 10,000 years of climate change in half a human lifetime, I now see those very things that I was hoping for, including consciousness transformation, including evolution continuing. Because I think my, my understanding of evolution for 12 years was utterly diluted. It was thinking of evolution as progressive, and it's not. It's adapting. So anyway, I, I got a chance to... Lean. I want to lean into you in this stuff because I, you know, I'm a bow of respect to anything you want to believe and and hope for or 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 be passionate about. But I have some real question about the value of, uh, say, for example, siding with with Stan Rushworth in what what you just quoted me because I think it's not uncertain. The the the, the idea that things are uncertain that we just we just don't know that is horseshit we know that the sun is going to continue to do its thing the earth is going to continue to do its thing and it would be false humility to propose no that's not going to be the case and the idea that any mammal our size can survive a four or five or six degree celsius rise is complete lunacy in my opinion so I just want to say, first of all, I don't think you're arrogant at all. I think you're a very humble. Well, I do. I think sometimes I am, but I'm also passionate, and I hope that I at least have the presence of mind to be able to step back and say, yeah, the way I just said that was pretty arrogant, but nonetheless, I'm passionate about it. I, um, what I have to say to that is basically, yes, and. I think basically almost everything you just said is is quite true. I think that the final conclusion that there is a certain reality that's heading, that we're, that's unfolding. I think I know that if we continue on this path of economic growth and development and business as usual, and politics as we know it, every single institution and mechanism for bringing about change. And you know, I, I'm very close to the renewable energy uh, industry. My my father is that's his it's his his baby. You know, it's he, he's been in it for for decades, and I'm very cynical about their development, their path. But I'm extremely optimistic in 
the contingency of the wild and crazy personal transformation that is possible for me because I think about and look at the person that I was, the mess of reactions and the heap of, of discontentment and misanthropy and and even in my reaction against the system that I hated so much, yeah, yeah. I was just being it. Yeah. And so I see myself today after many journeys, after many heartbreaks, after many calamities, because that's really what it takes, yeah. you know, for, 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 to look into the whirlwind, to look into the hurricane and see the face of God, you know, mm, to really yeah. see that. And we are certainly with, without any margin of error going to see horrible things very soon and are seeing them today. But my hope in that, and this has been a very profound shift in my entire attitude. Mm. And it, it is not a rational belief. Yeah. It is entirely <laughs> irrational and mystical yeah. and comes yeah, through, through an intuition that has led me uh, successfully through this world without money, into the heart of darkness, into dangerous places, and against against all the odds that I have have lived this life, that following that intuition and that synchronicity mm -hmm. has has not proven me wrong yet, and so I, I trust it. That's yeah. what I put my trust in. That's great, and I'm a huge bow of respect to that. But I just wanted to, I just wanted to keep expanding on that. That I believe in people. I believe in the essential human being underneath all this. And you and I and all of us, we still incubate and carry forth you know, the seeds of destruction. I, actually, that reminds me of this little poem that uh, I'd like to read at some point okay. in this little talk later. Yeah, sure, go for it. But um, I I do see people every day, the shift that I occurred, and a lot of this came from this period of working on this film, living, just, I had this mountaintop revelation. Like, oh my God, the world is ending. You know, very mystical, spiritual thing that was like, the world is ending, society's collapsing. It was a biblical moment and you have to go and warn them. You have to warn them that this is going to happen. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I did all this crazy ritual and prayer and magic and angels and yoga and all of it. And, and I, I, I had this vision. I was going through these cardinal directions and doing all these mantras. And, yeah. and I stopped at South. It was South is like lust and fire and desire. And I like felt this voice speak mm -hmm. out of me. And it said like, you know, lust and desire and growth are the wheels that move this world. And you know, without them, there would be no stasis. All life would have not moved past a single cell. And I like gravitated toward the campfire. And it was like, where is the source of lust and desire in the world? It was like Los Angeles. It's just like, you have to go to Los Angeles and make a movie warning people. And I, I did it. And the next day I'm like leaving the mountain and I came back into cell service. And my a great friend that I just met um, messaged me, said, come to Los Angeles. We're going to make a movie. And it was just like, oh God, okay, all right, here it is. We're going, it's off. Yeah. And so I, I followed this journey and it led me to the desert anarchist communities and mm -hmm. to living in my truck on the sidewalk and to staring into the homeless crisis in Los Angeles as the face of our ecological crisis that we yeah. cannot even identify and re relate to our own species. Right. And through this, right. this journey, the, this, this conflict with society, with myself, I, there was a lot of symbols recurring and the, the Bhagavad Gita was one of them. Mm -hmm. And the, there's a passage in that book that says something like, if you can experience pleasure as pain, then you are aligned with me, you know, the essential self that it exudes, that lives in all things. And so I used to get really dark and down about hearing mm -hmm. news that uh, children can no longer go outside in the rain and put their tongues mm -hmm. out to catch drops mm -hmm. safely, right, right. that our oceans are poisoned, that there are bombs of carbon and methane in frozen in the permafrost and if they melt 
if we melt down to that point, they will be explode. They will explode into the air, right. and years worth of emissions cumulatively will be released. Yeah. I used to think hear those things and and despair, yeah. and now I hear those things and I get a, a very strange sense of optimism, because it means that people will hear that and experience that and their illusion, which is really what we're stuck in. We're trapped in a belief system of a video game, of uh, a delusion, of a, of a narrative that is completely false and disconnected from reality and godless in the truest sense. And that the experience of these calamities happening are what is going to bring about a greater shift in consciousness than has ever been happened. And I, when I look at old civilizations passing, when I look at the Bronze Age collapse and things like that and say, oh, we've been through this before. But we've never been through this before. We've never been through a totally global crisis that we understand on this level, that we have the science, the knowledge, the education, the understanding, and the prophecy all coming together to harmonize all over the world, that humanity has a common predicament that affects every single one of us. Every single life on this planet is affected by this. And I, and I do not think that nature itself, which is a conscious entity, would a allow such a thing to happen in vain. And perhaps I'm wrong. I, and I'm, I'm willing yeah, I, to accept that, but just real quick, I, I will go down, even, even in the face of the nuclear inferno, I will say we can grow from this. This is finally it. Because to get back to the beginning of, of our little talk, talking about wishing for the end of the world, I didn't wish for the end of the world. I didn't wish for billions of people to die, but I wish for, the, for this dominance hierarchy cycle, for this capitalistic, accumulative, human-centric belief system and structure that we have constructed for ourselves against nature, I want it to die. It has to die. And I'm joyous about bringing about its end because there is no other way we will kick this bullshit habit. <laughs> well, I don't share your anger anymore, but I share so much of what you just shared. And my own sense is that what I wish for, what I desire, because frankly, I don't think that there's virtually anything that we can do to speed up the demise. I don't think there's anything we can do to slow down the demise. I don't think there's anything that we can do to reverse it or whatever. So whatever's going to unfold in the coming decade or two, which in my opinion is probably at least an 80% chance it's going to wipe out virtually all complex life bigger than this that can get down into a burrow and survive under the ground for a while. But in any event, whatever happens, Life will continue. Evolution will continue. Gaia will continue. If we have 200 or 300 or 400, because there are 440 nuclear power plants around the world, uh, with several more in construction now as we speak, if a dozen of those or two dozen or five dozen or 200 of those go off and it ionizes the atmosphere, it could easily take Earth not just 10 million years, which is the norm after a great extinction to recover. It could take 20 or 30 million years. But the likelihood of Earth recovering, Gaia recovering, and life being fecund and abundant and consciousness continuing to evolve and transform certainly is there. So my own, my wish is not to speed it up, not to stop it. It seems to me way out of our control to do any of that at this point. It's to collapse with as much dignity, as much heart, as much compassion, as much generosity. And for me, this is sort of my feeling of my calling. Actually, I had one colleague say, Michael, I think that you are the Fred Rogers for the end times. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I can step into that. That's pretty yeah, fun. You absolutely are. You know, yeah. but but I I think that what I wish is that millions and billions of people can come to see what's unfolding 
at least understand enough of why it's unfolding to go, oh, God, of course, of course, of course. So they, they give up the bitterness and the hatred and the fear and the judgment and the, the toxicity of their own thinking about it and truly come to a place of global hospice where we support each other in this collapse, recognizing that, yes, this could absolutely be a transformation and there could be a continuation of even our species into the future. We just don't know. And so people like yourself who do believe that, man, I'm just a bow of respect. Go for it. You know, if that particular vision doesn't inspire me, but could be. I'd be arrogant for me to say it's not going to be the case. So, but so I do believe it is possible that we can support each other in in a die in the age of great dying, in an age of collapse, such that the greatness of our species, the true spiritual and ecological greatness of our species, does experience a resurgence, a renaissance, a rekindling, um, and that that uh, if any of us survive, there are mythic stories told about this process or this timing. I, I like to say uh, what we're trying to create with our group and organization, which I would like to talk about because that is sure. there's two elements of that. There's the okay. there's going high and there's going low, and okay. it's essentially. Uh, prepare for collapse and hope for utopia because what we're trying to create is a resilient network of interconnected communities of people who recognize what is happening and what its causes are and that it's the existing system and that bitcoin and going to space and you know business as usual uh running the you know transition to renewable energies is not going to bring about a, a shift but we can create our own alternative society and economic uh, model and, and system that we support each other through whatever happens. And I, I have a great optimism in connecting with the people that I've, I've recently been connecting with over the past several years in finally coming out into this place of putting my heart forward and going out there and saying crazy things on the internet and connecting with people and finding yeah. that it's not so crazy after all. And that there are people out there with designs and, you know, technologies that are truly working to manip to not manipulate, but to emulate nature, biotechnologies. Right. Like, like I, I saw someone post the other day that a renewable energy will, or solar energy will never be sustainable. And I just responded, well, you can actually make solar panels out of algae and recycled material. You can 3d print things out of trash. You can use coconuts, coconut shells to create batteries. And there's, there's this whole, as Buckminster Fuller called it, is a design science revolution that's yeah. happening that's bringing our technology, finally bringing it over this clunky, adolescent, shitty, pubescent mustache phase of destroying the world to make itself into creating leg legitimately regenerative materials. You can make from the, the, the hemp plant, for example, which and I'm not going to say hemp is the one shot, but there are plants like hemp that you can produce any material from silk to steel rebar to graphene, which is a material that's used in processing and computing regeneratively. It's a fast growing plant. It's, it heals soil. It pulls heavy metals and toxins out of the soil. It grows very quickly. You can grow a ton of it. You can do it in a centropic way, which is like a large scale permaculture like people are doing in South America. So there are regenerative ways for us to even increase our capacity of life for us to create systems right. that implement automation or even simple machines to make the, to reduce the amount of labor that it takes for us to do what we do. And not just on this top down nightmarish dystopian way in a way that is solar punk in a way that the people create ourselves and control yes. and know yes. how to replicate and understand. Yes. 
Yeah, let me just jump in real quick because I'm so grateful. First of all, in my world, there are three things that are truly paramount, that are of the most importance. One is limiting, uh, having enough millions of people accept that things are collapsing so that we do the work of limiting our geological scale toxicity. So doing everything we can to limit the number of nuclear meltdowns, the kinds of toxic, uh, you know, the, the fact that the seas, the oceans will continue to rise at least 25 to 40 feet over the next 200 years, no matter what. Absolutely, no matter what. That's an absolute up, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so we need to move our shit away from the oceans because otherwise it's going to seriously toxify the oceans even more. So that kind of thing, limiting our geological scale toxicity, assisting other species such as trees in migrating faster than any other animal can move their seeds so assisting in these in helping some species as many as possible pass through this bottleneck and the third thing is everything you just articulated which is all of the regenerative restorative ecologically ground moneyless economy kinds of stuff all the ways of being human with each other and with the land in a way that is truly grounded in our best ecological, what I call eco-theology, but our best ecological relationship to the living world as a greater thou, not a lesser it. And I think that's holy work, whether we, whether there are millions of humans 50 years from now, or whether there's no humans 50 years from now, that is, those three things are holy, holy work, no matter what. So I, I see, you know, I, I, genuinely can see a world where we can pull this off. I mean, it's crazy to think about it, but I think about all those problems like ocean acidification and melting of the ice and those things. These are physics problems. There are solutions to them. I, I don't know what they are. I can't say that. But you, you, the, you will the, hold that until you read the book that I've already recommended to you that you clearly haven't read yet, which is William Catton's book, Overshoot, The Ecological oh, Basis I ordered, of Revolution. I ordered it Change. last night, actually. That's great because I'm a, I'm a, when I'm you read that reader. book, I'm a slow reader. You, I will read. Well, it. that's okay. I've I've recorded the audio of the whole thing. That, I mean, I've, uh, and I've listened to it a dozen times. Oh, I would much rather listen to you to you. Great. Uh, that's your, that's your great. The, the reason the reason that 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 book is so why so many of us consider that book a the most important book we've personally ever read and probably the most important book of the 20th century is because one of the main distinctions the distinction between predicaments which can't be solved they can't be fixed we have to adapt to them and live with them such as death death is not a problem to be solved it's a predicament that we have to adapt to and ultimately die with and problems and fixes and anybody i'm about as phobic of the word fix or solution as as a person can possibly get so when you mention that there are solutions for this and that I just turn off. It's like, okay, whatever. He doesn't get ecological overshoot. Well, so I, I do get an ecological overshoot. I understand the problems that we're going through, the predicaments that we're in, many of which are, are not – I mean we are in a changed climate, not a changing climate. And what we are – what I would hope all peoples step into is not a dogmatic paradigm of we need to do this, 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 and that. It is a train of thought and it is a mode of adaptation to what we're going through. But I see the wild card. In all of this is the the collective conscious, and we, and you you can talk about this big we coming down through this top down thing. I don't see that really happening. What I see happening, and what I can do in my immediate mile, is to speak this truth and connect with other people, and create community, and create dialogue, and work together to create an open source society, to create a society where we are sharing our information, and we are moving away from this competing mentality. If the nations of the world did uh, at some point say, okay, 
we need to work together instead of like the United States competing against China to stop them from creating nuclear fusion or, or all these technologies to say we can't let them get this. It, you know, this is how our technology is created, how, you know, corporations are controlling the development of technology and of science. They're totally controlling it. And this force of science and technology, which is it is not just in terms of making machines and things like that, but, you know, the ecological understanding of what we can do to remunerate, you know, through regenerative agriculture, through other, you know, like I have so many friends who are healing ecosystems right now. And, and I have a friend in um, one of our groups who's very, uh, he's down the doom train. And, you know, he, he, he speaks in a lot of absolutes. And I, I would consider, you know, the, the antecedent or the opposite of the hopium is a kind of intellectual heroine in a doom mentality that's just perpetually set in saying no and in talking shit. And I meet a lot of people on Twitter that are in this doom mentality. They're not like you. They're not kind and gracious and open and patient and actually willing to listen to other things. They spend their time attacking other people yeah. trying to make a difference, yeah. which is a very toxic, sad thing. And it, I think well, what I it is is a defense mechanism because it is easier for them to accept, okay, there's nothing I can do. This is it. There's, there's, you know, th then, then it is to say, okay, there are things we can do and must do. And my, my perspective to that is also is always, if you see this, this certainty of this calamity, then you have an absolutely dire responsibility, not just to prep and get your little bunker filled with, with dried beans, but it's to help the vulnerable people in this world adapt to what is gonna happen. If you are certain that the world is going to end and that everything is gonna collapse in this horrendous way, then you have a fucking responsibility to use your knowledge and privilege, which knowledge is the ultimate privilege, to do, think, to do everything that you can to make a resilient culture and movement to help those people through it, whatever it is that happens, and that is yeah. my, that is my perspective, that I can't say for sure that we're going to be living in the Venus Project in these circular cities and we're going to, uh, you know, in, in a positive way, cannibalize right. this, this cannibalistic civilization and recycle it into something right. that is efficient and works and is beautiful and is continually increasing itself and, and, and working to regenerate the earth and undoing so much of the work that we're doing and creating public transportation and energy systems because there's a million ways to make energy. There's a million ways to get around. There's, there's ways to do all these things in ways that can help the earth not destroy it. But the, the yeah. big, big, the big, sorry, the big point of contention that I have is that faith in the almighty we or whatever it is that you said. It is, I do believe that no matter what happens, people coming together and responding, not reacting, can make a tremendous difference. And, you know, as, as there have been apocalyptic events before, you know, there, we're going through this again. And, and I see the, the, I was obsessed as a child with the middle ages. And so I've read a ton about the, the black plague. Yeah. which was an apocalyptic event, killed yeah. half the people, you know? And then the peasants, as a, Jason Hickel's book, Less Is More, uh, had a great section about this and a great section about animism and about the uh, shift from, you know, the, the monotheistic religions or shift away mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. religions that worship nature and hold it as sacred to, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. basically adapting to this uh, view that life is sin and misery and, and death and, you know, nature should be controlled and it's poisonous and it, it fucks too much and all these, this, you know, which is a justification right. for an exploitative system that needs to expand constantly. Right. It's a beautiful book by Jason Nichol. But yeah, no, that he, I'm that quite he, familiar with it. Yeah. After, after the Black Plague, things improved for the peasants. Yeah, but, the, but, but, but it did so within the stability of the Holocene. It did so without the oceans becoming and the rivers becoming anoxic and, and exhibiting and expressing um, uh, 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 fumes that, that we mammals can't survive with. 
you know, hydrogen sulfide, things like that. The, the stability that allowed for whatever catastrophes and apocalypses have occurred over the last 7,000 years, and there have been lots of them, it always happened within the context of a stability of the Holocene climatic stability. And we could continue growing food. We could continue living. We are likely, it, my, my, in my mind, inevitably beyond that maintaining. And yet, there are no group of people on the planet that I am more of a full-hearted, big-hearted, full-throated amen and wishing that you the, to do the best is the people that hold your values, your worldview. And 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 I wouldn't even consider, I wouldn't call it hopium. I mean, for me to hold your worldview for myself would be hopium, what, I, what I'm defining as hopium. But it's more likely to come true, even if it's a 1% chance or a 2% chance or a 5% chance. It's more likely if millions of people hold the perspective that you're articulating. So I'm just a bow of respect to it, even though I don't hold it. But what I am trying to do is ensure that we, as Joanna Macy and I talked about a year and a half ago, collapse well, collapse with dignity, and, 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 and do so in ways that plant seeds for healthy culture, healthy, non-monetary ways of, of, of doing exchange, um, and, and ecologically sane and truly indigenuity, that getting back to that indigenous heart and mind and values and actions. It's the only way into the future. And again... That's true, Lord. whether we go extinct in 50 years or not. I agree. And when, when you say, you know, collapse gently, I think about that book, uh, Ecotopia, which I found. In no, a, yeah, uh, no, I read that decades ago, sure. Which I found in an old an old thrift, senior center thrift store, and it was all sure. dog-eaten, dog-eaten yeah, right. and moth-eaten. And I just love that book because that that uh, there's a he talks about the survival economy right. where they intentionally crash the economy right. and then and then work, to, work together to meet all people's needs. I, you, I – go ahead. There's one, one, one of, I mean, like I'm trying to think, okay, is there anything that I really think is important that I haven't yet articulated? And the one thing is that I would say the main focus of my, I'm an independent scholar. That's just what I do. I, when I become passionate about something, I spend 20 to 50 hours a week studying it for like years, usually to try to become the best I can be in articulating it and understanding it. And the two things that I've studied most in the last nine years, one of them is the ecological paradigm that William Catton and many others uh, have provided, but Catton's the, the foundation for virtually all of us, his book, Overshoot. The other is the rise and fall of civilizations. And what have we learned by those historians that set cultures side by side by side by side by side, civilizations, and then notice the common patterns of progress and then the common patterns of regress, of, of collapse? And one of the most common patterns, and I learned this first from John Michael Greer, and then it was validated by others, Toynbee and Spengler and others who are full-time historians, but Greer is a phenomenal. I've, I think I've read 14 or 15 of his books. I've recorded nine of them. <laughs> I just love John Michael Greer's stuff. Um, but one of the most common patterns is that in civilizational collapse and the collapse of empires that we have lots of evidence, those cultures that were literate, we have a lot of written evidence about how people thought and felt and believed and whatever. One of the most common beliefs is transformation, that we can truly transform things. And it's, it's the most common pattern of people that aren't in full-blown den denial or the other, th there's three categories of people that most people fall into in collapsing societies. One is it ain't happening just full-scale denial. The other is, it's happening, but it's the end of the fucking world. 
it total apocalypse, you know. That belief actually didn't exist until 3,200 years ago, but in the last 3,200 years, it's been present in most uh, collapsing civilizations and empires. And the third is those who genuinely believe and work for some kind of transformation at some scale. And they're often successful at some scale. It never saves the society from collapse, um, and, uh, and it never transforms the political, economic, and social structures prior to collapse, but it often does plant seeds of healthy culture on the other side of collapse. And I think that's what I'm hearing, and that's what others of my friends and colleagues that are in a very much of a still, still genuinely committed to true transformation, consciousness, spiritual, economic, ecological transformation. Um, I think we are planting seeds, and I think that that's to be celebrated and encouraged in every possible way, even though there's some that are in my camp, which are there's a 90%, maybe 95% chance that we are completely toast, not just we humans, but virtually all mammals, other than a small burrowing animal. And so then how do we be with each other? And how do we assure as little geological scale toxicity and ensure that as many, or at least increase the odds of as many other species making this bottleneck? In other words, how can we attend to our legacy as humans in the most... <laughs> in my Christian Christ-like, but what I mean by that is pro-future, uh, heartful, compassionate, generous ways possible. Sorry, I just got to gotta tell you a little window into how my mind works. Okay. When you, uh, when you talked about that little ground animal, I, I just got like a, uh, a very vivid, very like, like whole vi vision of like a short story or a character in a larger thing that is this little ground marmot that was like, genetically engineered and then the consciousness of michael dowd was put into it and so it's i, I play dungeons and dragons in this post-apocalyptic world okay. called, called the fourth world right, right and um i just imagine like that that's that's a uh, a character you know that it's an it's an encounter like a little mystic sage that like comes out of the ground is like well let me tell you about tap Every, there's been four worlds before this they all fucked up they destroyed themselves pointlessly you know oh that's, That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And and one of the things, because I really do respect you and I admire where you're coming from, and I especially align with your thank heart you. and values, that I uh, would welcome. Michael, that means a lot. It really does. It, I really appreciate your appreciation. Thanks. Well, if, if you do take the time to like carefully read and mark up and maybe listen to, because what I would encourage you to do is to actually get a paperback copy of overshoot, but listen to my audio version. Because the nice thing about my audio narration of it, first of all, I got the publisher's permission. Catton had just died, so I could get his permission. But um, when I'm moved to tears, as I am a couple of times in that book by, by William Catton's generosity of soul, uh, you can hear it. I Phone going. I mean, you can hear me crying. You can hear Connie crying on the couch. It's like, and, and, and those paragraphs, probably three dozen times throughout the book, I'll say, now that paragraph was so good. I'm going to read it again, and so it alerts the audio <laughs> listener. Hey, wake up! You know, make sure you pay attention here. So, if you do take the time to read that, I'd love to schedule another conversation with you and just lean into what and how that book might have made a difference and how it's enriched your own worldview. I don't care if you agree with me. I'm I'm a celebration of who you are and what you're doing and the path you're on, independent of anything that I'm thinking or feeling. But I want to stay in communication with you as a friend and colleague. Of course, and and you know. I do agree with you, you know, in a bit in in a big way. That doesn't mean I agree with every single thing that you're saying yeah, or, no, or every piece of it. But mo we agree, and and this is an interesting thing I find with most people that 
most people, period, even the atheists and the Christians, there's a weird, I have this uh, hard to articulate thought that like there, we all, not that we all agree, but there is an, a point of agreement for all people if we can communicate enough. So the atheists and the Christians, I think that, you know, like there, there, there is a, an undeniable God. You know, there is an undeniable pattern in the fabric of reality that somebody from a from a spiritual perspective and somebody from a, the, a from a, a, a totally atheistic perspective. I mean, there's there's people out there that, that are going to say, oh, the universe is all random and, you know, and, and everything is matter matters all that exists. But then you have the quantum physicists that are, yeah. you know, further to the left on the spiritual spectrum than a lot of the Christians, you know, that that are saying absolutely that's untrue. There is there is, a you know, th this reality is holographic. It's not yeah. really what we think it is. There's no such thing as solidity. It's all spirit. Yeah. It's all information. Yeah, and there exactly. are hol holographic, uh, holocratic patterns. That, that, you know, uh, uplift individual creations that are a part of a whole that, you know, I, I agree with you, you know, uh, yeah. most of what you say, I think I would say that I think for a lot of people discovering you, um, you'd be a bad influence for a lot of people I know. Because <laughs> well, it would keep them away from me. Don't publish would, this it would, interview. Because it would unduly feed a, oh, a sense of pessimism and a sense of, oh, well, of, of a lack of action instead of what where you're where when I read that things are collapsing, it's like act. Act no yeah, matter what. Yeah, my friend yeah. uh, Alan Chornak, one of my best friends, the pessimistic environmentalist, who you'd really, you'd really love, you'd love this guy. He's he's in my movie, um, and he's just like this fiery communicator. He's so pissed off because he's a, <laughs> as a wildlife biologist, and he's watching yeah. life die all, all around yeah. him. He's been talking about climate change. Yeah. He's like 12 years old, and his perspective is: we're going down, we're going down swinging. You know that no yeah. matter what happens, we have to do the best that we can. We have to create this, as you said, a renaissance of a beautiful, renewed humanity of restoring the sense of who and what we are, that we are not a parasite, that with it, yeah. we, that humans organizing in complex society is not in and of itself. It, what we call civilization today, absolutely cancerous, absolutely destructive. Right. But human beings, as, as David Graeber's last book beautifully, so beautifully points out, have organized themselves into so many different forms and structures. Exactly. And many exactly. of them were large and complex. Many of them were urban. Many of them yeah. had you know, uh, what we would, cons would consider you know, a complex civilizational apparatus that did not end up this way. And yeah, that it's not yeah. something that we are, we're not inherently fated when we organize above certain groups and sizes to just fuck ourselves over and destroy ourselves. And this, all this cycle of all this horrible development has in its own strange way, given us the tools to finally and perfectly manage our, and economize our society with the use of technology, with the use of humans to allow us to create systems that allow us true participation, participation and and truly holocratic uh, decision-making systems where the individual is not smashed by some bureaucracy and you know the collective is not for foregone for the enrichment of an individual we can create systems that by design work as nature does that yeah. does not allow one organism to suck up 90 percent right. of the resources right. no, exactly exactly well just to be clear and 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 yeah i appreciate you saying that you know some of the some of the people in my circle you know you'd be a bad influence on what i do know is that connie uses my wife uses an analogy of an arm like this that if you're up here and you genuinely believe that enough people have a, a shift in in heart and consciousness and intention of, of, of commitment, whatever, you're going to really resent anybody down here saying it's too late for that. You know, you're, you're not going to be able to accept that. I'm a religious naturalist. I have no otherworldly or supernatural beliefs whatsoever. I'm an eco-theologian <laughs> and a religious naturalist. And to my mind, a, a person's God is their ultimate concern. 
Whatever is their ultimate concern is their God. And if the market is your ultimate concern, if human technology and human, you know, whatever, then that's your God. So for me, having anything less than the biosphere, the cosmos, as your ultimate concern is a ecocidal notion of God, of the divine. And, and, and so it's that, it's a limitation on what we yeah, are, you know, to, to to say that we are anything less than everything, yeah. that we are that we can be confined to our own personal success, right. but that's any measure of success that it has to come at the expense of other people. That I'll never be happy, truly. I mean, I'm happy every day, you know. In right. but I'll never be content with the state of the world when I know that you know the majority of the world lives on less than two dollars a day on that right. bullshit metric. When they're right. when I know that a child dies of hunger every five seconds. Right. When I know that even if the ecosystem wasn't collapsing on itself, that this would be no way to live. Right, that this exactly. is an unacceptable form of inhumanity that we exactly. have created this society that you know, only exists because you, you have to stand up on somebody else's face and push them down and drown right. them so that you can stand up. Right. That's not yeah. acceptable, no matter no, what's happening I, in the rest of the world. I but get it and I align with that. Nature yeah. is forcing us into a, an, an evolution, an adaptation, a, a fundamentally changed sense of who and what we are. And I embrace that change and I, and I am, am hopeful. I have hope. And, and people tell me that all the time that like, and I, I pour it out, you know, and, and I'm not hopeful all, all the time in my daily life. When I'm walking through the aisles of Walmart to find a dongle so that I can connect one cord to another cord, I'm not hopeful in that moment. No, but I, I get it. Yeah, I, I, just, I, I, I don't even find the word hopeful or hopeless useful anymore. I truly align with Stephen Jenkinson, who says that, you know, we to reject the false dichotomy of being hopeful or hopeless, that they're both a part of the same delusion, basically, that, 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 that I, I live in a place that's hope free. And I am passionately engaged. I am compassionately engaged. I want to make the biggest difference that I can and reduce as much suffering as I can. I love connecting with friends and colleagues like you and many others. That's, that's why virtually everything that I've done that I consider of any value in the last five years exists on or linked to the postdoom.com website. There's three main pages on postdoom.com. There's the 85 conversations. There's the weekly and biweekly discussions where we support each other on a weekly, biweekly basis, like how to stay present, how to stay heartful, how to do good work. And then there's the resources, which are all the audio, text, and, and videos, and documentaries, and podcasts, like all the best of the best stuff that I'm aware of and that anybody else that lets me know of, aware of in this post-doom, which is not the same thing as doom. Unfortunately, you can't get to post-doom without at least going through a little bit of doom. So anybody that's listening to this or watching this and want, that has any curiosity about where I'm coming from, you'll find everything that, of value on the postdoom.com website. Yeah, and I would just say to harmonize with that, that uh, any conversation that I've ever watched of you is just full of, of, of value, you know, of human mm. value and of compassion and mm. patience and acceptance and understanding and love. And that is really something that is so important. And I would say, you know, to, to people in your community, um, we need to organize outside of this structure. I mean, you, it's not enough to say, okay, the old thing is dying, but I'm still going to keep going to my job and doing this and living in this box house. We can and must create an alternative, resilient community because, as you said earlier, before we started recording, or maybe you said I, I'm, that, you know, it's a privilege right now to be able to go to the grocery store and put gas in the car that will not exist much longer. And, yeah, and the, exactly. the working class of this world are, are not, are not living in, in, they're living in collapsed conditions every yeah. day, a little piece of their, of their stability crumbles away. 
And so we need to organize together and create alternative systems. And we can, and we can do it in a a way that is infectious, that spreads wildly, that shows people a better way to live, a more equal way to live, that we can live in communities where we all have a nice, high quality standard of living that is sustainably created. We can have fucking natural swimming pools and, you know, we can have uh, media labs and, and, you know, places where people can, you know, utilize the, the fruits of the civilizational thing, like the internet, like screens and ability to connect and microphones and cameras and, you know, all these things that allow us to spread our message and to live at a high standard. We can have those things, you know, at a scaled, at, at a, at a healthy, at a healthy pace, at a high, at a, at a scale, one of my friends at the uh, Aravana project, they're working with an indigenous community to design them like this circular, you know, very futuristic circular city. And it's, it's a, there's a beautiful, uh, closing of that loop of, you know, the indigenous with, you know, the, the civilized where we're, we're coming full circle. We're spiraling around into something truly new that takes what we've, what we have learned from this, instead of being like angry at technology and all these things to say, okay, we actually have new tools. And I, I don't think that, you know, that our ancestors, if they could see that we had the ability to lessen suffering greatly and we didn't, I think they would consider that obscene privilege. Mm-hmm. But so I, I just invite anybody in this mentality that understands this system's going down. Okay, we have a, an obligation, a moral obligation, and just a pure survival obligation to come together in more egalitarian structures, in more mm-hmm. resilient forms, mm-hmm. share our knowledge, share our information, share our wealth. Don't just go into the bunker alone. That's going to be really a miserable life, yes, even if exactly. even if you do have all the beans you can eat for fifty years. Right, exactly. Go off in the distance. Exactly. Yeah, I was telling somebody the other day that you know who, they were talking about, you know, should you, sh- you know, should I prepare? Should I stockpile? Should I get a gun or whatever? And I said, I was a sharpshooter in the military. I'm a kick-ass, you know, marksman. I, I can and I can use lots of different weapons. I don't have a weapon. I would rather die with my neighbors than protect my shit from my neighbors. Thank yes. you very much. And while I don't share any of the optimistic stuff that you articulated in the last four or five minutes, I'm a deep and profound amen to the fact that there are people like you and pursuing that with as much passion as you can. Um, well, we can I create, think- we can create microtopia for, you know, us and our communities and our neighbors. So if we and our yeah, neighbors come together, exactly. we can create a much better and more, more sustainable system. Exactly. And connect and, it globally. And, and doing that. Well, that's the piece that I'm, I may not share your optimism by, but nonetheless, Having that heart, having that intention, having those values, doing that with as much passion and integrity and commitment as we can at a scale that we can genuinely do it is holy work. And I say, go for it. Absolutely. I'm doing that my own way here. It's just that I don't share sort of some of the optimism that what's possible at the we level, but that's okay. But our differences we, are more interesting. We is an, ex- is an expanding thing. It starts with you and me. It starts with two people. I had this dream years ago about an application, about a a way to network people that starts by looking for one person or connecting two people that are very similar. You know, instead of us having to go through all the manual work of finding each other and connecting, even though we agree and align so much, you know, we have algorithms which are currently used to, uh, you know, uh, take our hopes and dreams and turn them into targeted ads. <laughs> you know, that, it, it, that this, these learning machines study yeah. the way we use language, the way we communicate, connect us with people that are like us. That's two people. That's we. And then it works to connect with other people and form into a, a little a little community. And then it zooms out and it sees that community as an individual and it analyzes it in the same way. And it works to connect that community with another community and, and another community. And this is the way that the council structures in Rojava and other other places around the world that have uh, alternative systems, they they organize themselves in this way and it scales upward and it can scale to a, lar- a much larger scale without 
you know, a, a, abusive political authority that allows us to connect, that allows us to share information, that allows us to be resilient and share what we have. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to create is a network of communities that are able to abundantly produce what they need and to distribute in a network, not in a market, that surplus that we have to basically be, be our, our own parallel society that is in, interdependent and self-dependent or, or uh, independent of this existing cancerous parasitic apparatus. And I think that is something that is absolutely essential for us to build. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm an amen to that impulse and that desire. And uh, I hope you're right, because I'd love my granddaughter, who's two years old, that lives two blocks away, to be able to live in that kind of a world. <laughs> Even though I personally think that there's probably a more likelihood that there will be no humans 20 years from now. 20 years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think things are, are going to spin out that rapidly that there will probably be, I, I put it at 80% chance that there'll be no humans at all by 2040. Well, maybe in uh, 2041, we can uh, reconvene. Yeah, I'd love to. World Believe me, I'd love to be wrong, brother. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I, I really appreciate this. I appreciate talking to you and I'd love to continue it. I, I'm, cool. I'm in this not to, you know, form little transactional shows and do things with people. I'm in this to form relationships, yeah, exactly. you know, with, with people of all walks and to grow exactly. with them. And I seek out those people that I really respect and have a lot to learn from and have a lot to share with. And, you know, that, that's, that's, that's what keeps me going on a daily basis. I'm Amen. trying to socialize my way out of whatever uh, personal apocalypse there is. And, and yeah. if, if that isn't as infectious as I hope it is, as, and if, if, if we can create structures and formulate larger we, then it will spread large enough that we make a larger difference. Yeah, cool. Well, I, I'm committed to staying in good, collegial, loving relationship with you. Well, t well I, I just so appreciate it, man. Um, take it easy and, uh, you know, have a little, have a little hope. Give, give into a little bit I, of hope. No, no. I, I find hope is a beautiful hope, thing. I find living hope free to be way more soul nourishing than hopeful. Even if your hope is that, I don't know. I, I hope is like, for me, it's like, it's like tuning my consciousness to the, the little beams of light, like this of synchronicity, you know, that I'm going to, I'm, I'm open, I'm open to miraculous things happening everywhere, even in the Walmart and they happen everywhere. I don't yeah, know if you, well, maybe, maybe you have a different wording and that's the, the, the trickiness of language that all our words mean different yeah, things exactly. to you and I, but for me, that's what hope is. Yeah, and hope well, is, hope is this, this fire, this fuel, this very clean energy source I that allows well, I, Yeah. To, and I, I hold it differently, but, but there's certainly a, a common green heart that I think I share with you. And my, the colleague of mine that I feel most closely aligned with probably more than anybody else, really two. One is Margaret Wheatley, Meg Wheatley. I, there are two post-doom conversations with Margaret Wheatley, neither of which I had. One of them was Terry Patton, who just died about less than a year ago, just dear, long-term friend and colleague. What a spiritual brother. And then the other one with Michael Shaw, only a few months ago. And so my two conversations with Meg Wheatley uh, are really, really lean into sort of this conversation where you and I are now in terms of hope and that sort of thing. So anyway. I'll check it out. Great. Thanks, brother. Well, yeah, I appreciate you, Michael. We'll keep in touch. Sounds great. Look See you on to the it. wide web. All right. <laughs> yeah, bye-bye. See you in the end of times. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs>